Lord, we're standing in this room. We're offering you our worship and our love. And we say, Lord, that in this now, in this moment, we loved you because you first loved us. And God, we long for that day where we will gather with the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people around the throne. And we together will lift our hearts and our voices proclaiming the worthiness of the Lamb slain, the Lion of Judah, our Savior and Lord. Lord, until that day, we have that picture in, in our minds and in our hearts, and we pray as we've been taught to pray that your will would be done on this earth as it is done in heaven. Lord, as we worship, we thank you that you shape and you mold our lives as a potter molds clay to make something beautiful and useful. Lord, the messiness of that process, we give you thanks for it. We give you praise and thanks that you correct us and you encourage us, you inspire us, you teach and admonish and direct our paths. Lord, we thank you for your word that is like a light for our journey. As we open it together today, Lord, we ask you to help us to see something in it that will shape us and make us more like Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And Lord, we also pray that those gathered are watching, are listening, that do not know you. Lord, that you will speak in such a way that their hearts will listen and come alive. God, you are good and you have been good to us. And we pray for your near presence even in this moment. We pray in Christ's strong name, saying together, amen, amen. Friends, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to, to Mark's gospel. Today we begin a new teaching series called, uh, What a Mess, God's Grace in the Real World. We'll take that through several weeks uh, in the summer leading up into the fall, talking about God at work in our lives to transform us and to shape us and to make us more like Christ. There's a theologian named Wesley Hill. Uh, and the, theologian is, is what he does for a living. It's, it's who he is. But he's also a human being. And as such, he likes normal human being things like his backyard. How many of you like your backyard? Recently, Wesley had an experience out in his backyard that you may identify with. He, he's out there. It's, it's summertime, and he's enjoying the lightning bugs. I hope you never get to the place in life where you're not mesmerized by lightning bugs. I'll, I'll chase a lightning bug in a New York minute. I mean, I'll do it. I love lightning bugs. Well, he's out there just watching the lightning bugs. Simultaneously, uh, he's donating blood. You've been there. All right, so he's slapping at his ankles, he's slapping at his arms, uh, he's starting to itch. He is being attacked by those bugs from the underworld. And Wesley Hill, as a theologian, thinks in these terms, he says, sort of a metaphor for the human condition that the best and worst creatures of summer look nearly the same. Think about that for a minute. 
It is sort of a picture of our experience of life and our experience in the world. We say very clearly that this is our Father's world. And we recognize that a bountiful creator made us and gave us life and that God said, this is good, this is good, this is very good. We recognize a blessedness about our world, a, a world full of wonder and awe, a world that, that captivates our, our vision uh, and our hearts and our souls and, and makes us feel just alive. It's amazing that God the creator made things like lightning bugs and gave them to us, uh, that, that God made things just for our enjoyment, things that are just beautiful. I love those creation narratives in Genesis where it said some of the, some of the things were made because they were pleasant to the eye. I've said this before and I'll say it again, magnolia trees have no utilitarian function whatsoever. In fact, they're kind of a pain, but they're beautiful and they smell good. So this is our Father's world, but it's also the habitation of mosquitoes and dragons and jackals and the adversary. It's a world that's been marked and touched by the fall. Our rebellion and our sinfulness, our disobedience and our stubbornness. It's a world where we looked at our Creator God and said, nope, this one's ours. We snatched it and grabbed it for ourselves. And we marred, disfigured, and broke it. It's both of these things. And we've got to hold both of these truths in our hearts simultaneously. This, in fact, is one of the gifts of, of Christian theology is that we can have both of these truths. They're part of the narrative, and they are part of the story. And if we get either part of them, we fall off the horse on one side or the other. We become e e either naive, and we go through life with sort of a saccharine sentimentality where, where we don't recognize any of the ugliness. We try to live like it doesn't exist. We, we won't affirm it. We won't speak of it. We, we just try to, try to hold and grab for, for me and for mine. Or we become nihilist and, and everything is despair and dark. We, we fall off the horse and we don't live a life that's rooted in reality or in grace. One of the examples of this is, is the somewhat recent just myopic uh, commitment to authenticity. We've learned as church leaders that authenticity is so important that the quicker we learn to fake it, the better off we'll be. <laughs> authenticity has become the new pursuit of holiness, the new pursuit of life, the, the new telos, the new the end game. We just say as long as we're being authentic, we're being whole and we're being real and we're being right. As long as we're, we're, and sometimes we sort of get in a contest of authenticity to see who can look more authentic. You ever seen this with people? And we end up with sort of a Popeye theology of life. I am what I am. Well, as long as you want to be like that, you're never going to get anywhere with olive oil. <laughs> you're never going to get off that broken down tugboat and you're going to eat spinach days on end. Of course we are what we are. That's the most obvious thing imaginable. But we're also not what we used to be. And we're certainly not what we're going to become. And we're not what God is doing in our life today. 
And so the end goal, the end game, is not just to be, I am what I am. But to recognize in this world, we are not yet who we are, although we are who God has made us, and, and that God is working to transform us, and that authenticity, although important, is not the end game. The end game is the likeness of Christ in our lives, and God's abundant grace in the world as it is. Friends, you don't get to live in the world that you want it to be. We all have this one thing in common. We have to live in the world that is. But none of us have to settle for it. Because this world, this world has been touched by grace, the grace of God who made it and is redeeming it. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? So for us, the hope of Scripture and the gift of grace is that we get to experience his grace in the midst of the real world. That in the midst of this mess, there's a God who has not left us, turned his back on us, forsaken us, given it over to us to handle and fix on our own, but a God who has come right smack dab into the middle of it and for whom the Spirit of Christ is still at work shaping and reshaping this creation for his likeness and his glory. Isn't that good news? And so for about six weeks, we're going to talk about images in Scripture and situations and scenes where God just invades messy situations. Give us a picture of what he'll do in our world and in our life. And today, very briefly, we're going to start at the beginning of the gospel story in Mark and see Christ at work declaring who he was and who he is in the midst of a very dirty church meeting. You ready for that? All right, Mark's gospel begins like this, chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, from the very first sentence, he lays his chips and cards on the table. He said, this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the gospel of the Son of God. And then you have the baptism of Jesus, verses 9 to 11, where Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan. Then verse 12 and 13, you have the temptation scene where Jesus is in the wilderness. We've been welcoming tourists into our sanctuary. We have 50 people a day sometimes. Isn't that crazy? They come in here and they, they, see, they see the windows. People have come in here and started to cry. They've asked questions. They've probed their life and their faith. Uh, it's the most crazy thing in the world. People are really and truly in, in pursuit of truth and goodness and beauty. And this is a beautiful room. And, and so they shuffle in here sort of tired from, from being tourists. And, and they see these pictures. And many of them have questions uh, in their heart and, and have requests for prayer and, and so forth and so on. One of the things that, that Doris will point out as she's showing people around are all the stories that are told in these windows. Some of the greatest stories are hidden away, like the resurrection. It's back there in that hallway behind the baptistry. But they get to see it. And we have a window depicting the temptation right back there. You see it? You can turn around and look at it. Jesus is kind of giving the devil this one. He's like, get out of here! Why is that here? Why is that in the room? It's a recognition of this truth. 
That this is God's world and it's a world of grace and it's a world that's been touched and visited uh, and, and is being sustained by Christ and also a world full of lies and a liar and an adversary. And Mark's gospel begins with that affirmation that Jesus went out into those uninhabitable places with jackals and he duked it out with the devil. And he was tempted in all manner like we are tempted, yet without sin. This is why Paul can write in Romans that we are saved by his life. And how did he do it? He did it in obedience to the Father. He did it in the strength the Spirit provides. He did it by rightly handling the Scriptures. It is written, it is written, it is written. He did it for us, and he did it to give us a way and a pathway. But it's a recognition of the messy world that we live in and the gracious kindness of God in the midst of it. And then right from there, Jesus begins his ministry. Verse 14, now after John was arrested. Now, how about that marking the beginning of your ministry? The person that baptized you just a few sentences before a few months before, is now in jail, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So he's saying, this is what God is up to. This is the coming of the kingdom. Uh, turn away from what you've been doing and, and your life of sinfulness uh, and your rebellion against God and turn to me. Re come to me. Come to me. And experience life. And then in verse 16 and follow, he calls his disciples. And then Jesus goes to the synagogue in Capernaum, verse 21 and following, and the demons recognize him and speak out, the Holy One of God, verse 24. You see the messy world and the grace of God in one place. Then Jesus goes to, to, to heal Peter's mother-in-law at Peter's house. He, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, uh, and you have this, this powerful scene about God and his grace as Jesus begins to heal the broken. And they begin to wonder, just wonder, if this is the one promised to us, if this is the one that is to come, if this is the one who is bringing us life. He's been proclaiming that life, and now he is demonstrating it. He is giving us a picture of it in, in the midst of the world. It's, it's a picture of the gospel of grace. And they hear, perhaps in their mind, in their heart, the words of God in Exodus 15, 26, that I am the God that heals you. And here is the proclaimer of the kingdom, healing people they'd known all their lives. The fisherman's mother-in-law, who lives just down the street, close to the synagogue. We've known this lady all of our lives. And he's touched her and made her whole. And they crowded in to listen to his words. They crowded in to be, to be touched by him. Perhaps, just perhaps, they had that picture of Numbers 21 in their mind where the fiery serpents came in to judge God's people for their, their stubbornness and, their, and their, their heart that was turned away from him. 
And Moses interceded for, for God's people. And, and, and God told Moses, put a snake on a pole and have the people look at that snake in faith. And if they look, they will be made whole. Perhaps they had that scene in their mind. Later on with another religious leader, Jesus called that scene to his attention. And he said, just as Moses lifted the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And as he's lifted up, he will draw people to himself. To make them whole. To give them life. Jesus comes into a real life town filled with real life people who have known each other all their lives. And he came as the healer. Perhaps, just perhaps, he did it. To say, I am the God that has come into this world to bring you life. Well, it got so crowded and it got so clustered that he had to get out of town. I wouldn't have done that. I'd, I'd, I'd have rented out some signage I'd, I'd, in, in Jerusalem. I'd have put up signs in Jerusalem, Rome, Cairo. And I said, there's a, there's a guy who's healing people in Capernaum. Tourists from all over Israel would have bummed, rushed Capernaum. The local Capernaum people would be like, well, where are they going to park? <laughs> That's how it worked if this was me, not Jesus. Aren't you glad I was not the Messiah? Not Jesus. Jesus goes out on a preaching tour. He goes to the Galilee, to other towns, little places like Magdala, and he preaches and he makes people whole and he, and he tells them to repent and they do and they start following him and, and he gets a bunch of people together uh, and then it gets so bad he has to go out into the wilderness places and kind of hang out and, and they found him out there and they started coming to him out there and he preached to turn to God and, 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 and repent and, and here's the kingdom of God and he, and he made them whole and they thought maybe this is the God that heals us. Maybe this is the one that we've been longing for. Maybe this is our hope in the world, and they, and they kept coming. And he's like, well, if I'm hanging out here in the middle of nowhere and they're still bothering me, I at least ought to go home and see what happens there. So he goes back to Capernaum where he had set up shop, and we have this messy scene beginning in chapter 2. Re listen to these words. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. He's back. He settled down. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in the front door. And he was speaking the word to them. He's probably back at Peter's place where he'd healed that woman where they heard of him before. So he's at his buddy's house, and he's, and he's, and he's staying with his buddy. He's, he's couch surfing with Peter, the fisherman. Hey, if I'm, if I'm God and I'm at the incarnation... An incarnate, if I'm the incarnate God, I'm not going to couch surf with the fishermen. But that's the upside down nature of the gospel. That's grace. Here's God in the flesh in the midst, barring a couch from a fisherman. So he's there. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after having dug through it. Did you get that part? They let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes who were sitting there questioned in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? 
It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves, and he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up, immediately took the mat, and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Can you imagine being there in that little bitty house close to the synagogue? Everybody you've always known crowding around. And then these guys carry their friend. They come to the door they can't get through. Undeterred around their friend, they climb up on the roof and they start to dig. Can you imagine the sound and the fury, the noise, as it starts to scratch? I mean, Jesus is teaching, and, and there are probably some questions back and forth, but largely it's just somebody talking, and you hear, <laughs> if that happened right now, I can guarantee you what would happen. None of you would look at me any longer. <laughs> You'd go like this. And then the leaders among you would say, there's a noise. Make it stop. I'm like, I can't. What am I doing? I'll get on it Monday. I can't do anything about it now. That's what happens when the lights used to flicker. You remember that? We, we, before the renovation, we had flickering lights, and, and everybody would look at the lights. And then a few of you, you know your names would go, the lights are flickering. I'm like, no, man. So he's in there teaching that. And the next thing, you probably saw something. You'd see little chunks falling. Then maybe bigger chunks falling. Uh, since we've renoed the sanctuary, we've changed the environment just a little bit, and some, some paint flakes off the top. I know none of you have ever noticed this. <laughs> of course you do, because if a paint flake falls, everyone goes, paint! <laughs> and the same people used to deal with the lights go, man, there's paint flaking. I know. Okay, so Jesus is in there. So Jesus is in there. And, and stuff starts coming down, starts hitting the big shots. I love Alexander McLaren's line about this. He says, no doubt their act was inconvenient. For however light the roofing, some rubbish must have come down on the heads of some of the notabilities below. And no doubt it was interfering with property as well as propriety. Uh-oh. You mess with the order of service, that's one thing. You mess with the bottom line, that's another. But here was a sick man, and there was his healer, and it was their business to get the two together somehow. It was a messy situation. But their love and their faith compel them to come around their friend and brother and get him to Christ. Do 
Jesus didn't have to hear their rehearsed story. He didn't have to read their confession of faith. For he saw it. He saw the faith in the man's, in the man's face as he was being carried, lowered by the friends. Could you imagine Jesus? Maybe one moment as, as he's coming down out of the roof, everybody's staring. But I guarantee you, Jesus is the only one that saw him. People are seeing dirt, and they're seeing a hole, and they're seeing a, hey, we had this all figured out, and it's not working out the way we, we had it figured out. And they're saying, hey, Rabbi, there's somebody tearing up the roof. He's like, duh, I get it. I'll take it up with the mother-in-law. But Jesus saw him. He saw the faith in his eyes as they lowered him down. He saw the faith of the friends. You see, Jesus had been preaching the gospel. He had been preaching the kingdom. That the kingdom had come in his ministry, in his life. And if they would come, they would find the kingdom. And they would know the king. And their life would be transformed by that. You see, they had been hearing these rumors. And, and people had been giving testimony from these little towns like Magdala and Galilee. All around the Galilee. And all the people out in the middle of nowhere, out in the woods. And the people in Capernaum. They'd heard the stories and they'd heard the preaching. And they decided they were going to get there come hell or high water. And in the mess of that service, Jesus saw their trust. And seeing that faith, he spoke. And what he spoke was so shocking and so surprising. They were looking for be healed. And he got way down deep underneath all of that. He looked at him in the eyes. And he said, son. Son. We don't know how old this man was. We know Jesus was relatively young. Probably not old enough to be his daddy. He says, son. Because he's speaking as God in the flesh son your sins they're forgiven and then Jesus saw something else he saw deep down in the heart of the notabilities the ones scraping dirt off of their cloaks the ones that came in from out of town to check out this itinerant preacher he saw their hearts, and he saw what they were thinking in their minds, and he spoke. Mark got a copy of it, probably from Peter. Afterwards, Peter, Peter, what were they thinking? Peter, let me tell you what they were thinking. The fat one in the corner, the, the, the fat guy, this is what he said. He said, why does this man speak like this? They knew his name. They didn't show up at that house to see somebody speak like this. They came to see Jesus, the one that had stirred up all the dust all around the country. 
They knew his name. Why didn't he think his name? Why was he that fellow? Because it's dismissive. It's dismissive. He said, the big guy, he said, why does that fellow think like this? He said, the, the, little, the little short guy in the robe, he said, he's blaspheming. All tough and big in his mind. He said, he's blaspheming. Didn't think I would know it, but that's what he said. He said in the third one, the third one, he said, only God can forgive sins. Well, you know what? He's right. And you know what? He's wrong. And if you only get one part of the syllogism right, you're all wrong. Jesus in that house that day through enacted Christology, was saying, this is who I am, and this is what I'm about, and I've come to this messy world to forgive your sins and transform you if you will come to me. So Jesus knew their hearts, and he knew their minds, and he spoke. They said, all right, guys. Here we go. So that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on this earth. I say, he didn't touch, he didn't make a poultice, he didn't make mud and spit and smear it on his kneecaps. He said, son, stand up, take your mat, and go home. And here, this messy religious service has become a place of controversy and tension and here, all eyes are on two people, on Jesus and on that guy on the mat. And Jesus has just spoken an authoritative word to him, and he has to do something about it. He has to respond in obedience. Don't pass over this. Can you imagine how hard that would be? You've been here for a while. You couldn't get there yourself. You were brought in by your friends and on the word of this guy that the big shots are yelling about, the guys who know those scriptures way better than you do, they think he's wrong. He's saying he's right. And you're here in front of him and you've got to decide. You've got to decide to stay on this mat or you've got to decide to get up. And don't think for a minute it was an easy decision. And he got up and he shuffled his way home and they were all amazed. Friends, here's the deal. Faith is the condition in which we are touched in the midst of this messy world by this God of grace who has come to forgive us of our sins. We got to do something with our sin. And most of us either lie about it or try to handle it on our own. The only place we can go is to him. And trust and faith is a condition to have those dealt with by his mercy and his grace. That's the condition. And on that condition, they brought their friend and they found wholeness in him. And obedience is the result. So the question for all of us today in the midst of this messy world is what do we do with this one Jesus? He's told us He's told us that he is the one that will deal with the sin in our lives and our hearts. 
He'll give us a new life. Will we stand in result of his command and go home new? Or will we stay untouched? And also lingering over us is what lengths will we go to to come around the people we know and love in order to get them to Christ? You see, their days were on the mat and their days were carrying the mat. We're never, we're never at the same place at the same time over the course of a life. For seven years, I've prayed for God to send us people to encourage us and help us. And I've prayed for God to send us the hurting. And He's answered both of those prayers again and again and again and again. And after seven years of being the pastor of this church, I've seen those names and those categories change. Helpers hurt and, hurt, and, the, and, and the hurting learn to help. And one day you're carried on a mat, and one day you're called to carry it for someone else. We live in a messy world, a world touched by the God of grace. Will you engage that for your good, the good of others, and for his glory? Let's pray. God, you're good, and we thank you for being so. And we thank you, Lord, that in the mess and in the controversy and in the, in the questions and in the wonder, you are present in the very center of it all to speak your truth and to call us to life. Lord, I pray today as we sing this hymn of decision and if there's someone in this room that, that needs to respond to you, to confess their faith, or to join this church. Lord, I pray that they would have the courage to come and pray with us. Or if there's simply people here who just need a touch of your mercy and your grace, I pray they too would come, Lord, for your glory and for their good. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let's stand together and let's sing. David. <laughs>